0: Breakfast by John Steinbeck. This thing fills me with pleasure. I don't know why. I can see it in the smallest detail. I find myself recalling it again and again, each time bringing more detail out of a sunken memory. Remembering brings the curious, warm pleasure. It was very early in the morning. The eastern mountains were blue black, but behind them the light stood up faintly colored at the mountain rims, with a washed red growing colder. "'Grayer and darker as it went up, and overhead, at a place near the west it was merged with pure night. "'And it was cold. Not painfully so, but cold enough so that I rubbed my hands, "'and shoved them deep into my pockets, and I hunched my shoulders up and scuffled my feet on the ground. "'Down in the valley where I was, the earth was that lavender gray of dawn. "'I walked along a country road, and ahead of me I saw a tent that was only a little lighter gray than the ground.' Beside the tent, there was a flash of orange fire seeping out of the cracks of an old rusty iron pipe. Gray smoke spurted up and out of the stubby stovepipe, spurted up a long way before it spread out and dispersed. I saw a young woman beside the stove, really, a girl. She was dressed in a faded cotton skirt and waist, and as it came close, I saw that she carried a baby in a crooked arm, and that the baby was nursing, its head under her waist out of the cold. Their mother moved about, poking the fire, shifting the rusty lids of the stove to make a greater draft, opening the oven door, and all the time the baby was nursing, but that didn't interfere with the mother's work, nor with the gracefulness of her movements. There was something very precise and practiced about her movements. The orange fire flickered out of the cracks in the stove and threw dancing reflections on the tent. I was close now, and I could smell frying bacon and baking bread the warmest pleasantest odors i know from the east the light grew swiftly i came near the stove and stretched my hands out to it and shivered all over when the warmth struck me then the tent flap jerked up and a young man came out and an older man followed him they were dressed in new blue dungarees and in new dungaree coats with the brass buttons shining they were sharp-faced men and they looked much alike the younger had a dark stubble beard and the older had a gray stubble beard Their heads and faces were wet, their hair dripped with water, and water stood on their stiff beards, and their cheeks shone with water. Together they stood, looking quietly at the lightning east. They yawned together and looked at the light on the fill rhymes. They turned and saw me. "'Mornin,' said the older man. His face was neither friendly nor unfriendly. "'Mornin', sir,' I said. "'Mornin,' said the young man. The water was slowly drying on their faces. They came to the stove and warmed their hands at it. The girl kept to her work. Her face averted and her eyes on what she was doing. Her hair was tied back out of her eyes with a string, and it hung down her back and swayed as she worked. She set tin cups on a big packing box, set tin plates and knives and forks out too. Then she scooped fried bacon out of the deep grease and laid it on a big tin platter, and the bacon cricked and rustled as it grew crisp. She opened the rusty oven door and took out a square pan full of high, big biscuits. When the smell of that hot bread came out, both men inhaled deeply. The elder turned to me. Had your breakfast? No. Well, sit down with us, then. That was the signal. We went to the packing case and squatted on the ground about it. The young man asked, Picking cotton? No. We had twelve days' work so far, the young man said the girl spoke from the stove. They even got new clothes. The two men looked down at their new dungarees and they both smiled a little. The girl set out a platter of bacon, the brown high biscuits, a bowl of bacon gravy and a pot of coffee, and then she squatted down by the box too. The baby was still nursing, its head up under her waist out of the cold. I could hear the sucking noises it made. We filled our plates, poured bacon gravy over our biscuits and sugared our coffee. The older man filled his mouth full, and he chewed and chewed and swallowed. Then he said, God Almighty, it's good. And he filled his mouth again. The young man said, We've been eating good for twelve days. We all ate quickly, frantically, and refilled our plates, and ate again until we were full and warm. The hot bitter coffee scalded our throats. We threw the last little bits with the grounds in it on the earth and refilled our cups. There was color in the light now, a reddish gleam that made the air seem colder. The two men faced the east, and their faces were lighted by the dawn. And I looked up for a moment and saw the image of the mountain, and the light coming over it reflected in the older man's eyes. Then the two men threw the grounds in their cups in the earth, and they stood up together. Got to get going, the older man said. The younger man turned to me. If you want to pick cotton, we could maybe get you on. No. I got to go along. Thanks for breakfast. The older man waved his hand in a negative. It's okay. Glad to have you. They walked away together. The air was blazing with light at the eastern skyline, and I walked away down the country road. That's all. I know, of course, some of the reasons why it was pleasant, but there was some element of great beauty there that makes the rush of warmth when I think of it. Welcome to the Bellaters Podcast. I'm Dave Stevens. So, before I get started, a few parenthetical notes on the podcast itself. First, if you'd like easy access to the text pieces I'm reading, I've set up a Twitter feed on which I'll post links to each episode, and either screenshots of the poem, if it's short enough, or a link to the text. So, right now, this uh, Twitter feed has one follower, me. So, hurry, and you could be number two. <laughs> um, second, A few people have told me that on the first two podcasts that my audio levels were a bit off and that there was some popping where I apparently got my mouth too close to the microphone. Sorry about that. I'm a bit new to this technology, so I'm sorting out the kinks. I now have one of those little mesh discs that hangs in front of the microphone that's supposed to help with such things. So hopefully it's better. Also, I'm told that there are painfully obvious transitions and cuts when I have obviously stopped and then restarted the recordings. Yeah, this is a tough call. I am working from prepared notes on these podcasts, something I never did when I lectured. However, when I tried to freeform lecture these podcasts, I was appalled at the amount of meaningless noise I make with my face when I'm thinking out loud. I just couldn't subject you all to this cacophony, so... Please excuse any obvious cuts or transitions. I'm sure I'll be getting better at this as time goes on. And then finally, if you have any suggestions, thoughts, or if you'd like to recommend a piece for me to consider for an upcoming episode, please feel free to email me at bellatristpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Today I read a very short story by John Steinbeck. Steinbeck is, of course, considered one of the great American novelists of the 20th century. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962 and is probably best known for his novel about the Great Depression, The Graves of Wrath. I'm a fan of Steinbeck and I love almost anything he wrote, but I'm particularly fond of his sad, funny, touching novel, Cannery Row, and The Tragic But Beautiful of Mice and Men. Also, most people don't know this, even fans of Steinbeck, but he wrote an outstanding volume in which he tells the Arthurian legends from the tradition of Sir Thomas Mallory, the acts of King Arthur and his noble knights, and, in my opinion, it's perhaps the best-written and most accessible version of Mallory's Camelot that exists today. This story, Breakfast, appears in Steinbeck's anthology of short stories, The Long Valley, and is almost certainly taken from a journal entry. In fact, if one pays attention while reading The Grapes of Wrath, you'll notice that in Chapter 22. The scene is repeated almost word for word, although with some intriguing differences. I used to read this story to my freshman English class each semester, and I was often struck at how emotional many students were when listening to it. It was not uncommon for several people to have tears in their eyes at the end of the reading. It's an odd thing to consider why such a simple story seems to invoke a strong emotional response in so many readers. The story seems to have the same quality as the narrator's memory of the scene, that there is some element of great beauty present that defies articulation. One thing that you may have noticed, or should notice upon rereading, is that this piece uses imagery, or descriptions of sensory impressions, extraordinarily well. This story really hits the senses. You can feel the cold as the narrator shuffles down the road, and hear the crunch of the gravel beneath his feet. You can smell the bread and the bacon. You can feel the hot coffee scalding your throat, You can see the colors of the stove fire, the sunrise. This is a very vividly imagined scene. This is one of the secrets of compelling fiction. And if you have aspirations toward being a writer, you should remember this. Descriptions of not only how a scene looks and what the characters in it are doing, but how it smells, feels, tastes, and sounds help to immerse your reader in the scene. And here's one of the secrets of why literature is not only enjoyable, but also worthy of serious respect. The subconscious brain cannot distinguish between a vividly imagined event and the real thing. It's true. Look it up. As far as your subconscious mind is concerned, if you've pictured it clearly in the mind's eye, it has happened. This is why coaches and athletic trainers tell athletes to flush it, forget about it, after a defeat, not to keep replaying the loss over and over again in your mind, and to visualize the ball going into the goal or other positive imaginings, Whatever you vividly imagine, you are practicing. If you're good at reading, if you can become lost in a novel or other form of literature, then you have an amazing ability. The ability to live experiences that your subconscious brain accepts as real, but are not. You can live many lives rather than just one. And if you accept this, you can easily understand why it matters what sort of literature you put into your brain and why it's the worst sort of folly to pretend, as some do, that sorting good literature from bad and great literature from good is just a matter of opinion. Here's why this is so important. The truth is that our illusion of being in conscious control of our choices is just that, an illusion. The part of your brain that is the thinker of thoughts is just sort of along for the ride. The large, mysterious black box of the unconscious is the one that's really calling the shots in all of this. If you don't believe this, try this experiment that I've borrowed from Sam Harris. Think of a city, any city in the world. So, what'd you think of? Maybe you said New York or Anchorage. Doesn't matter. Think back for a moment. Was that the only city that popped into your head? Perhaps not. Perhaps New York, Orlando, Paris, and San Francisco all popped into your head, and you chose New York. So... Here's the question. At that moment, were you free to choose London or Moscow or Sacramento or any of the other dozens of cities that you know? You were not. Where did that short menu of choices come from? Why those cities and not others that you know? Because that's the menu your subconscious decided to provide to your conscious brain. So If the black box of your subconscious is ultimately in control, and if you can influence your subconscious, actually train it through vividly imagined events, then why wouldn't you choose to do so carefully, perhaps even with a sense of reverence? If this is true, think about how reckless it is to fill that black box with crap. Reality TV, the outraged porn of the modern news, shallow, action-packed films that depict happiness as nothing more than the gluttonous indulgence of our basest material and sexual impulses. Look, I'm not being a prude here. As far as I'm concerned, you should be able to read or watch whatever you want. All I'm arguing is that it might be worth thinking about what you are training your subconscious to value as you make choices about what literature to consume. But we digress. Back to the story. One of the reasons that I decided to choose this story, besides the fact that I love it, is that it provides a great example of how all that is wrong with literary theory today actually starts from a place of reasonableness. What does that mean? Well, you've heard me in the last couple of podcasts criticize the act of analyzing literature solely for the purpose of engaging the political, and I stand by that criticism. However, I do have to give the devil his due by acknowledging that the toad that squats on my beloved discipline, made up of equal parts intentional obfuscation, faux complexity, and oppression scavenging, like pigs snuffling around for truffles of discrimination, did start from a place of reasonable and potentially interesting inquiry. It is interesting to notice, for example, the way in which the story depicts the family who hosts the narrator to breakfast as exceptionally noble examples of the working class. You can't help but admire the joy and reverence they evidence in eating and sharing a simple meal. You've got to notice the fact that they seem grateful, they seem delighted to be given the opportunity to work, even a job as hard and menial as picking cotton. And they're so proud of their new dungaree clothing, like they were top fashion or something who doesn't like these people? How can you not like them? Who doesn't feel the tug to emulate them or to help them? Steinbeck was a really powerful writer, so we know that none of this is by accident. So it is interesting to take note of the fact that the story is set in the Great Depression and that the author was a socialist whose fiction is a fierce critique of the failures of early attempts at capitalism. This is all fine as far as I'm concerned. These sorts of observations lend texture to one's consideration of the story, and they make for interesting conversation when discussing the piece. But to say that the wheels have come off this particular bus in English studies is to engage in understatement. I just want to read you a bit of text from a Marxist literary theorist. This is Raymond Williams, a pretty big gun in this field. I'm not making this up, and this what I'm about to read you, is a very mild example of what you'd find in literary theory journals today. So think about this. This piece is ostensibly designed to comment upon and make clearer the reader's engagement with literature when considering how socialism or Marxism might have impacted the stories they read. Think about that. Quote, Because of the difficulties of the ordinary proposition of base and superstructure, there was an alternative and very important development, an emphasis primarily associated with Lukas on a social totality. The totality of social practices was opposed to this layered notion of base and a consequent superstructure. This concept of a totality of practices is compatible with the notion of social being determining consciousness, but does not necessarily interpret this process in terms of base and superstructure. Did you get all that? There'll be a test later. So keep in mind, this piece was published 20 years ago. And I can assure you that the language used by literary theory types has not become clearer. To me, applying this self-important, intentionally obfuscated babble at stories such as this feels like defilement. How does this sort of analysis if we want to give it such a generous term, bring joy or wisdom or understanding to anyone. Whose life is made better by such bullshit? If every bit of scientific and artistic creation were to disappear tomorrow, it'd be a catastrophe. We'd never recover. On the other hand, if all literary theory of this sort were to disappear tomorrow, I think we would manage somehow. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this story. It's one that I find myself coming back to often. It's a good read around Christmas or New Year's or any time you'd like to feel thankful for the simple pleasures of home, hearth, and family. Thanks for listening. See you next podcast. The purpose of literature is not to save your soul. It is to make your soul worth saving. Now, here's the story one more time. Breakfast by John Steinbeck. This thing fills me with pleasure. I don't know why. I can see it in the smallest detail. I find myself recalling it again and again, each time bringing more detail out of a sunken memory. Remembering brings the curious, warm pleasure. It was very early in the morning. The eastern mountains were blue black, but behind them the light stood up faintly colored at the mountain rims, with a washed red. "'growing colder, grayer and darker as it went up, "'and overhead, at a place near the west, "'it was merged with pure night. "'And it was cold. "'Not painfully so, but cold enough "'so that I rubbed my hands "'and shoved them deep into my pockets, "'and I hunched my shoulders up "'and scuffled my feet on the ground. "'Down in the valley where I was, "'the earth was that lavender gray of dawn. "'I walked along a country road, "'and ahead of me I saw a tent "'that was only a little lighter gray than the ground.' Beside the tent, there was a flash of orange fire seeping out of the cracks of an old rusty iron pipe. Gray smoke spurted up and out of the stubby stovepipe, spurted up a long way before it spread out and dispersed. I saw a young woman beside the stove, really, a girl. She was dressed in a faded cotton skirt and waist, and as I came close, I saw that she carried a baby and a crooked arm, and that the baby was nursing, its head under her waist out of the cold. Their mother moved about, poking the fire, shifting the rusty lids of the stove to make a greater draft, opening the oven door, and all the time the baby was nursing, but that didn't interfere with the mother's work, nor with the gracefulness of her movements. There was something very precise and practiced about her movements. The orange fire flickered out of the cracks in the stove and threw dancing reflections on the tent. I was close now, and I could smell frying bacon and baking bread the warmest, pleasantest odors I know. From the east, the light grew swiftly. I came near the stove and stretched my hands out to it and shivered all over when the warmth struck me. Then the tent flap jerked up, and a young man came out, and an older man followed him. They were dressed in new blue dungarees and in new dungaree coats with the brass buttons shining. They were sharp-faced men, and they looked much alike. The younger had a dark stubble beard, and the older had a gray stubble beard. Their heads and faces were wet, their hair dripped with water, and water stood on their stiff beards, and their cheeks shone with water. Together they stood, looking quietly at the lightning east. They yawned together and looked at the light on the Phil Rhymes. They turned and saw me. "'Mornin,' said the older man. His face was neither friendly nor unfriendly. "'Mornin', sir,' I said. "'Mornin,' said the young man. The water was slowly drying on their faces. They came to the stove and warmed their hands at it. The girl kept to her work. Her face averted and her eyes on what she was doing. Her hair was tied back out of her eyes with a string, and it hung down her back and swayed as she worked. She set tin cups on a big packing box, set tin plates and knives and forks out too. Then she scooped fried bacon out of the deep grease and laid it on a big tin platter, and the bacon cricked and rustled as it grew crisp. She opened the rusty oven door and took out a square pan full of high, big biscuits. When the smell of that hot bread came out, both men inhaled deeply. The elder turned to me. Had your breakfast? No. Well, sit down with us, then. That was the signal. We went to the packing case and squatted on the ground about it. The young man asked, Picking cotton? No. We had twelve days' work so far, the young man said. The girl spoke from the stove. They even got new clothes. The two men looked down at their new dungarees, and they both smiled a little. The girl set out a platter of bacon, the brown high biscuits, a bowl of bacon gravy and a pot of coffee, and then she squatted down by the box, too. The baby was still nursing, its head up under her waist out of the cold. I could hear the sucking noises it made. We filled our plates, poured bacon gravy over our biscuits, and sugared our coffee. The older man filled his mouth full, and he chewed and chewed and swallowed. Then he said, God Almighty, it's good. And he filled his mouth again. The young man said, We've been eating good for twelve days. We all ate quickly, frantically, and refilled our plates, and ate again until we were full and warm. The hot, bitter coffee scalded our throats. We threw the last little bits with the grounds in it on the earth and refilled our cups. There was color in the light now a reddish gleam that made the air seem colder. The two men faced the east, and their faces were lighted by the dawn. And I looked up for a moment and saw the image of the mountain, and the light coming over it reflected in the older man's eyes. Then the two men threw the grounds in their cups in the earth, and they stood up together. "'Got to get going,' the older man said. The younger man turned to me. "'If you want to pick cotton, we could maybe get you on.' "'No.' I got to go along. Thanks for breakfast. The older man waved his hand in a negative. It's okay. Glad to have you. They walked away together. The air was blazing with light at the eastern skyline, and I walked away down the country road. That's all. I know, of course, some of the reasons why it was pleasant, but there was some element of great beauty there that makes the rush of warmth when I think of it.